Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Carolina and Clara, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on the philosophy of color. I'm so excited. (laughs) We love this topic. (laughs) Yeah. So to give a bit of the outline of the episode, um, I will talk about it in terms of a metaphysical and epistemological sense and why color, the issue of color can be controversial and color perception. And this also relates to things we've talked about in the past, such as the mind-body problem and perception. I will also talk about color in terms of uh, the language game and some of Wittgenstein's ideas about color. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, so um, color raises several metaphysical issues um, concerning the nature of physics and, and reality and the mind. And among these issues are questions concerning about whether color is part of a mind independent reality and what account can we give to the experience of color. So David Hume famously says, sounds, colors, heat and cold, according to modern philosophy, are not qualities and objects, but are perceptions of the mind, which summarizes one of the epistemological problems of color. So when we think of the sky, they are blue. When we think of an apple, it's red. But whether these are properties of the object or perceptions of our mind or a sensation is the essence of the topic. And so with this comes theories such as color eliminativism and subjectivism. So color eliminativism is the view that physical objects don't have colors in the crucial sense and subjectivism is the view that color is a subjective quality so uh, wait according to what you've just said both eliminativism and subjectivism Mm -hmm. support the idea that colors don't exist as a physical property but only exist in the mind um yes they do okay yeah interesting (laughs) so we're gonna ignore that color is possibly physical reality (laughs) well we'll we'll, we'll get to that okay (laughs) yeah so um this view of eliminativism and subjectivism has several supporters such as uh hume but also descartes who's one of my favorite philosophers Mm -hmm. and um so It's hard to make sense of the claim that colors are properties of sensations or psychological properties and that they're not properties of materials and and of the object. Why? Uh, Well, because of what you uh, just said as well, that it also almost seems counterintuitive to disregard the fact that objects have properties. How can all of these color sensations and perceptions just be in our mind? Okay. which is what the argument of eliminativism and subjectivism are, are saying. Instinctively, we look at an apple and we say, oh, it's red, and we think it's a property of the apple, not a property of our mind. Yeah, but what if the property of the apple, which causes red, mm. still exists, but red itself doesn't exist as a property in, in an apple? Yeah, that's really interesting. Because um, another argument mm-hmm. uh, for the philosophy of color is representationalism Mm -hmm. which utilizes the concept of intentionality which I know is something you talked about in our episode on materialism versus dualism do you want to just quickly say what intentionality is yeah so intentionality um, and 
please do keep in mind I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> Intentionality is the idea of an an aboutness of something. So, for example, a thought is always about something else. I'm thinking about going to the beach. I'm thinking about the work I have to do. But, say, an object has no quote unquote aboutness to it. A rock is a rock. It has no intentionality. Yeah. So, in the context of color, um, color is a phenomenological property because color doesn't exist as a physical thing inside the brain. For example, if we see something that is green, um, supposing that the object you're sensing doesn't actually have green, so going along the same, same lines, mm. we know that there isn't a physical green thing inside our heads when we experience green, so therefore it's um, not entirely physical color. Mm. But representa a representational theory takes this into account by saying that the sensory qualities of the experience, the experience of seeing the green, is a, co a consequence of intentional contents of the object. So it's a representation of the object. Mm -hmm. And I really like this way of thinking because it kind of frames the brain or the mind as like a representation, null version of reality. Yeah. That's so it might not it might extend beyond color as well to mm -hmm. other physical uh other seemingly physical properties. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think that also really relates to the mind body problem as you mentioned earlier and it's interesting because um one of the biggest dualists is Descartes and he also talks about intentionality and he also talks about qualia. And so both Descartes and Locke think that there are uh, no colors in the physical world as I was describing earlier, but they do also hold the view that there may be a secondary quality in colors that are powers or dispositions to cause a certain type of experience. So, so the qualia and the sensation. And, and that, that kind of goes beyond the physical, like emotions, for example? Uh, basically saying that there may not be the objects may not contain color but they may contain a quality that induces us to experience color like light yeah so like <laughs> okay. wavelengths it okay. would be a good example no, i was thinking i was that makes sense but yeah first my first reaction was thinking on the other side of the spectrum so like the end of the perception so how after you perceive color through the first stages of perception mm -hmm. like just taking in the light yeah then further processes happen that can bring up memories yeah. or emotions and I thought you were referring to that and I think that's quite interesting because I've just realized that if you take the whole color experience mm -hmm. as a whole there's so many aspects of it yeah. but if you can define colors by the higher order processes like emotional processing mm -hmm. then then you really start to see the non-physicality of color yeah it's so interesting you say that because Jana Martinovic, she's a PI at the University of Edinburgh, and she has this really interesting study about the neural differences between chromatic and luminance-driven attentional salience in visual search. And uh, what they find is that neural mechanisms that compute attentional salience are constrained by low-level inputs. And this study shows that the mechanisms underlying attention and attentional salience when perceiving color are constrained by low-level inputs and that stimuli that combine color and light compared to stimuli that contain only light demonstrate that color 
and light channels are integrated during pre-attentional visual processing before top-down allocation of attention is triggered. So this relates to what you were saying in that there are so many processes with perceiving color. And in this case, it's super interesting that they found that top-down processes and top-down allocation of attention, which we've mentioned in previous episodes related to predictive coding, so top-down coming from places that originates from things such as memories or like uh, higher cortical areas allocate where we have our attention to perceive the type of color or light inputs. Yeah, but only after are received. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting how the input of color can stimulate so many different pathways in the brain that lead to several different types of experiences in a way, including the so-called raw color experience, but also then attention and memories and emotions, etc. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a third possibility that Descartes and Locke propose in relation to this color um, conundrum. And they say that the representationalist view does not rule out aversion with subjectivist elements. And so they propose an experience where where both the sensory experience represents a physical object as having the quality, as well as the experience projecting the subjective sensory quality. Um, to summarize, uh, illuminativism says that the objects have no colors and that it is all a property of our mind. And subjectivism states that it is a subjective experience. And now Descartes and Locke further this by also saying that these experiences are of a certain type which are qualia and this also relates to the mind-body problem okay so to move on to the next part of this episode i want to talk about color in relation to the language game by wittgenstein but also address the phenomenology problem so what is the language game I'm happy you asked. (laughs) So first of all, to introduce Wittgenstein, one of my favorite philosophers, he is usually categorized as having the early Wittgenstein theories and late Wittgenstein theories, which I'm not going to go into in this episode. We'll do another episode on this. But to summarize, early Wittgenstein believed that the world is represented by thought and these uh, thought propositions could be communicated in terms of pictures. So he would say that the picture is a model of reality and that pictures are made up of elements that represent objects and the combination of elements in the pictures represents the combination of objects in a state of affairs. Essentially, um, what he meant by this was that thoughts could be summarized in a picture. Basically, everything that you could visualize could have to be representative of a thought. So when he uses the term pictures it doesn't mean a physical um picture or something it means like that the this picture in a way representation Mm -hmm. could be in the form of thoughts or words right yes exactly okay um and then late Wittgenstein, so he did a complete 180 on, on his initial thoughts and he completely disregarded. <laughs> I know, I love that. It's so humble and radical yeah. <laughs> to be able to just completely disregard your life's work and just change yeah. your mind completely. Yeah. So late Wittgenstein, he refers to his early work as dogmatic, actually, um, because he believes there's a gap between the question and the answer. And he then proposes this new theory called language games. 
It's about having certain rules for the languages and how context is so important when it comes to communicating. So there's this example where the word water with an exclamation point, like water, it can be <laughs> seen as the answer to a question or a command or... A warning. Warning, exactly. It's the same water, but it's used in a different context with different rules. Um, mathematics, like that's a good example of the language game. If you know the rules of maths, then you can do the maths. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it basically really grounds the fact that language is only meaningful in relation to the rules and, and in relation to the game and the context that it can be used. Otherwise, it's completely innocuous. And I guess the rules then mean like social constructs or social context, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is this an area that's easily flooded? Mm-hmm. If so, it's probably a warning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a flat or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although I did read a study that kind of counters this in that, uh, so again, by Jana Martinovic from uh, the University of Edinburgh, there's this famous idea about the Russian blues. Have you heard of it? No. no. And basically in Russian, there's two words for blue. There's light blue and there's dark blue. They don't oh, have a singular okay. word. Yeah. And initially there were studies conducted, psychological studies conducted that thought that people who speak Russian have a, a clearer distinction between the colors blue um, and that they do really see them as separate colors as we would see blue and green. Yeah. And then uh, Jana did the study that showed that that's not actually true because in terms of timings of dif- differentiating the colors, it's the same. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, That's interesting. Yeah. So it goes to show that, I guess, in some studies, contextual information counters Wittgenstein's rules of the language games. But I guess it's also like how we have different colors for purple, for example, like lilac, mm. indigo, lavender, which are different shades of purple. Yeah. But I guess we wouldn't necessarily like immediately differentiate those colors mm-hmm. upon looking at them, yeah. which is also technically to do with language, though, and like culture, because... I don't know about the Russian blues, but like maybe they're not used as often as mm. to distinguish them as like compared to blue versus yellow. Yeah. But uh, so this was to set up the premise for color and context of language games by Wittgenstein. Mm-hmm. So he's interested in the essence of color. This once again relates uh, a little bit to what we were talking about culture and whether it has a, a cultural meaning. So again, to use blue as an example, if a specific culture doesn't have a common name for blue and only has dark blue and or light blue, then if, for example, it's used as an example that imagine there's a club in Oxford that the color is light blue and there's a club in Cambridge that the color is dark blue. If you ask what these two clubs have in common, and this culture doesn't have the same word for blue, they would say nothing. But other people who have the word blue in common would say, oh, no, they have blue in common. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it influences our way of categorizing things. Yeah. Um, the philosopher Goethe says that we must respect the variety of color laws and the relations among them, which can differ from context to context, again, related to language games. Okay, and Erlebund says that, paraphrasing, whatever it is that is essential about colors is our medium of experiencing them. And so that's what he defines as the essence of color. What does that mean, though? What is our medium of experiencing them? Because doesn't it require, like, the physical properties of light? and Or does it not? Mm-hmm. Because technically, it doesn't, because we also dream in color. Yes, that's an interesting point. I think that what... Or we imagine things in color. yeah. But we have to have some sort of initial, you know, aspect 
of color. Like we needed yeah, to have integrated colors oh, into our memories in we, the first time. Oh, right. We've had to have had a color experience before we can begin imagining in colors. What yeah, saying? yeah. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, I, I would roughly agree, but we can't say for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that what Erlen Ben is trying to say is that for him, what matters in terms of color and what he is trying to grasp as the essence of color is not color itself, but simply the fact that we have the medium to experience color. Like we have our physical bodies that can experience it. And that's outside of that, color is meaningless. Yeah, yeah. Also in terms of language and color, um, I think something really interesting to just think about is the fact that color is indescribable. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, in terms of our language, we can say red or white Mm. categories you cannot truly describe what red is or what green is Mm -hmm. and uh, I think this highlights just how subjective color experience is right but then reflecting on this thought of oh color is so subjective we we have a shared language of it so we can Mm -hmm. both say red but is everyone else seeing the same red as I am Mm -hmm. um yeah, upon reflecting on this, I also realized that it seems easy to say this is subjective because we're not able to describe it in our shared language, but there's no reason why other senses or properties like shapes or sounds mm. are the same mm. in their subjectivity. Yeah. So then I think the main takeaway then is actually just the fact of how much we rely on language mm-hmm for conceptualizing our experiences as being shared and therefore our reality as being real. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. So it is a language problem, It really. is a language problem, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is why we'll have to do a whole other episode just on language. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I do agree that we may not necessarily need to understand the logic of color or perceive color in exactly the same way because we are still able to communicate. Um, we can point at the same thing and, and agree that we're looking at the same thing even though our perspective of it may be different. Yeah. Uh, there are some interesting remarks that Wittgenstein says that I just want to like put out as, into the world where yes. <laughs> <laughs> he asks, why can't there be a transparent white and why can't there be a reddish green? And can a transparent piece of glass have the same color as an opaque piece of paper? That definitely highlights certain so-called physical properties of color that have been studied, like Mm. red and green being opposites in terms of their wavelengths, or like... Opaqueness. Yeah, opaqueness, and also then how color and material are kind of intertwined. Mm -hmm. Just like how color and luminance, like light levels, are Mm. also intertwined. Yeah. Which can all be kind of described in terms of the neural mechanisms. Yeah, but it also completely goes against what Descartes and Locke were saying because they say that objects don't have any color properties. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it kind of suggests that it is a combination of both physical properties and the sensation. Which also relates to the dualism problem and whether or not there is a non-physical aspect of our mind or experience that colossally interacts with the physical world. Yeah. I'm slowly converting you into a dualist, I feel. (laughs) Mm, I would disagree with that. I mean, okay, yes, a sensation is technically not a physical thing, mm. but according to like the emergence, mm-hmm. emergentist point of view, kind of emerges from that material aspect of the world, like yeah. the the physical properties of the object, yeah. the physical interaction between the object and your physical body, yeah. and then the physical processes that happen in the brain or body and everything that mm-hmm. lead to an emergence of a 
so-called sensation experience that we struggle to perceive as being physical. Yeah. But it's so intertwined that it could be the same. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's intertwined, but it's not the same. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So then Wittgenstein says that actually color is a phenomenological problem. And so he says that phenomenology is a method, not a theory in of itself, which I think is really interesting. Elaborate. Because, you know, we talk about the phenomenological data gap all the time. Yeah. Um, about like when we do ex- experiments and what we see versus what like the data tells us, there's a gap. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're trying to prove phenomena mm-hmm. through data yeah yeah and quantifying and it's interesting that he says that it's a method and not a theory but how is it a method is it a method like a hypothesis is a method to discover things i think well i think let's pick color color is a phenomenological experience yeah but what is it a method for experience sensation yeah like color is not a theory in of itself yeah like we attribute or like either the objects oh, I see. cause so us to attribute sensations or we ha- experience the sensations, you know, whichever way around it goes, whether oh, we're like projecting that. Yeah. that we are sort of being used for a color experience to occur. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you said that. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I think that. I like that because it just feels like I'm so powerless. Like I'm just a vessel yeah. for a sensorial experience. Yeah, definitely. And that I have no free will, linking it back to yet another philosophical topic. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm just here living as a vessel. And I mean, who's to say that, yeah, we, we have any control of any of our sensorial experiences? Yeah, no yeah. one is. Yeah. <laughs> Given the nature of our biology and our physical beings and the deterministic nature of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Moving on. Okay, okay, this is really interesting. So then Wittgenstein tries to understand the experience of color by proposing a concept of comparison. So so we can only categorize something when we can compare it to something else. Like we can distinguish black from white because they're opposites, red from green, like yeah. you said. Um, however, this once again brings about lots of problems. First of all, what do we compare a specific color to? Can we only compare it to colors that we perceive alone? And also it's so inherently subjective. Yeah, and also another quote by Wittgenstein is, mm-hmm. white must be the lightest color to picture. Mm. Now that you said the thing about picture yeah. being thoughts and language as well, yeah. my whole concept of this quotation has changed um, (laughs) to become a much bigger thing but I thought it was really interesting because it's a simple sentence but it highlights yeah the relativity Mm -hmm. of a color experience because white always has to be the lightest Mm -hmm. black always has to be the darkest Mm -hmm. and so it's all relative yeah and it's also such an epistemological problem because I understand and I kind of agree that okay we can only really uh, categorize colors by comparing them to other colors but that just relates to my experience of color. There's an epistemological gap even when we try to create some sort of logic in mm-hmm. the comparisons. Yeah, it's sort of self-sustaining. Also, in relation to neuroscience, just really mm-hmm. quickly, there's a really famous phenomenon which isn't uh, completely understood yet called color constancy. Okay. And this is the mechanism by which when the light levels change mm-hmm. in a room, for example, your perception of color stays constant. It's the same. So it's not like if you dim the lights or, you know, 
make it brighter, or on a sunny day versus a gray day, you still see everything as the same. It doesn't look different. You know, your brain takes into account that, oh, the light levels have changed, so let's look at it the same way. Yeah. I think that's the fact that we know this is happening is a really good uh, way to prove that color is all in relation to itself. Mm-hmm. And also that visual perception is so adaptive to mm-hmm. your surroundings in this way. I think this really highlights as well that like a lot of sensory experience, I think, is actually kind of adaptive in an evolutionary sense almost in that it helps us better navigate the world. So like we don't want colors to change when the light levels change because otherwise we will be very confused. Yeah. And we need that constancy to continue to navigate the world. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, as always, I'm going to link it back to evolution yes. and how our brains developed... <laughs> for this purpose of enabling us to live in the world. So whatever, if color exists, if color is the property of the object or our brains, I guess, the, the way that we perceive it is an adaptive tool, which actually links to what Wittgenstein said yeah. about phenomenology yeah. being a tool. Yes, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I love that, that full is so circle. cool, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, just to summarize, the whole episode, we talked about color in the metaphysical, epistemological, and semantic sense. And we also approached color from the language game, phenomenological perspective of Wittgenstein. And it was such an interesting journey. And color perception and philosophy has so many, like it touches on so many avenues and topics. Yeah, definitely. Because it, it's just all about our whole perception of reality and the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whether or not we're just a vessel for sens- sensorial experiences to act upon us. <laughs> yeah. So do let us know whether or not you agree in the question posted below in our Spotify. And check out our Twitter, our website, Instagram, and support us on Ko-Fi. Thank you for listening.